realize it goes bam wakes everybody up <clears throat> all right <clears throat> we are uh, getting close to completing our study on defending the faith and the very basics of Christianity and what we've uh, what we believe why we believe it uh, putting together a whole lot of passages that <clears throat> show that salvation is by grace through faith and so we have uh, been all the way through the book and have reached the point where we're at the pen- the appendix. The appendix is something that seldom does anybody read. Okay? <clears throat> but it's also something that usually has a lot of valuable information in it. And, and uh, indeed, we've got some back there. We have uh, gone through the section on evolution that expanded the earlier portion out of the book to uh, a higher level. We've gone through selected cults where we pick some of the things up about a cult and what makes a cult a cult and how do you identify it, what do you do with it, how do you minister to them. And then this third appendix has to do with uh, the world religions. And uh, we saw, first of all, Islam. Uh, It's a little over a billion people on the planet right now that claim to be followers of Muhammad. The next thing we saw was Judaism. The number is a lot lower than that right now. And uh, they've kind of got the attention of the world. It says that the, uh, in the end times, they're going to be an intoxicant to the nations. I've always found it interesting how that little bitty chunk of land that you have to look for on a map, so many people can be interested in that piece of real estate. And yet it's promised to one man... It's promised to Abraham and to his seed, which is the Lord himself. And so one of these days he's going to come back and get all of it because they've never possessed all of that land promised to Abraham. The only way they can do that is resurrect Abraham and bring him back into the land. And I'm looking forward to that time. I know you are too. Judaism. The third one we're going to look at is a world religion is Roman Catholicism. And before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer to uh, be sure we're ready to do this. Let's uh, put away the pressures of the world, the problems, all the issues that we face. There's good things, bad things, uh, been a lot of thing, good things to be offer up thanksgiving for. A lot of uh, other things too, a lot of prayers for people who are sick and hurting and facing different difficult circumstances. And so we thank the Lord that he is going to listen to them and answer them one way or another. So let's take this time for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your blessings, all your tests. We thank you for all your goodness and and your amazing character and essence thank you for your plan and granting us the privilege of being a a part of it and father we do pray that we will be a positive influence on those around us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ we ask it in his name amen now roman catholicism it's uh, interesting where it came from it's interesting you know it's just like everything else the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, you can look at any group of people, any denomination, they've all got their flaws. They go along with it. But what, why do we put this under world religions and what kind of sets it apart? Now, Roman Catholicism has 
actually done a lot of good things. And people may not have realized that throughout the course of the year, especially with the Protestant uh, Revolution, if you will, and and the uh, you know they led the charge away from that. And and uh, so when they first started the Reformation, they were just trying to reform the immorality of Roman Catholicism, but they still embraced a lot of the doctrines that were held to there. So that when they did that, they um, uh, somehow, in some ways, they left some things behind. Now, Roman Catholics have had some tremendous scholars through the centuries that have spent uh, some time digging into the Scripture. At one time, they pretty well had all of the manuscripts that were available, and they spent their time studying these things. It's interesting to study how some of the manuscripts even got recorded uh, one guy went into a place and they wouldn't let him take anything out and they didn't have cameras or xerox copies back then and so he went into the place and memorized a portion of the scripture every day and came home and wrote it down that night and that's part of how that text was transferred now that's that's something hard for us to even think about I mean, after all, we've got to get home and have our coffee and watch the 6 o'clock news. But some people are a little more dedicated than, uh, than others. So, but Roman Catholicism, what is it, uh, what's its history? Where did it come from? And uh, I'm, I'm not going to cover all the details that are in the back of the book. You'll find those in the back of the book in the third appendix. And you're going to have a lot more details along with the statement of faith. And you'll find out in the Catholic Statement of Faith that there is a lot of overlap with us and with the Protestants and the Catholics. There is. So you can't deny that if you look at what they literally say and look at what the Protestants say. There's, there's really a lot of overlap. Now they descended from the early church. But centuries of distortion of scripture was challenged by the reformers in the 16th century. And Catholic uh, leadership refused to return to orthodox biblical belief. Now, this is uh, part of the problem. The first pope was not elected till 586 A.D. It was Pope Gregory I. We get the Gregorian calendar from him because he is the man that commissioned some of the monks to go back and to put all the dates of ancient history in regard to the birth of Christ. So that's where we get the B.C. and A.D. dates. If somebody tries to sell you a coin that says 64 B.C., I wouldn't buy it. It's probably not a good idea because it wasn't for 600 years almost till after the birth of Christ that anybody went back and connected all those dates to his, to his birth and his death. And so... Those are very important, and, and when you start talking about scholarship, tremendous scholarship. A lot of study went into those, trying to put those things together, and not just a biblical history, because they went back into Assyrian history, they went into Egyptian history, because what the way you put history together is not from calendars like we've got. They had a, a lunar calendar, a solar calendar, and they knew when this dog star came back to the same place every year, and they had it marked, and that's how they kept track of the years. But And they kept track of months, oftentimes by the moon uh, rotations, revolutions. That's the way they did it. But they didn't have a calendar like we do, and they certainly couldn't plug it into a computer and find out 
when was uh, May 5th, the 444 B.C., what day of the week was that on? Okay, we can do that without any problem whatsoever. But what they did was go back and compare all these dates, all these intersections, usually of battles and wars between one country and another country, and they started intersecting the dates. You get from the book of Kings, you get uh, in Samuel, you get statements like in the fourth year of Salmaneser, Shalmaneser, and the twelfth year of Tiglath-Pileser, and all this, and these are all Assyrian kings. You connect the dots there with any Egyptians that you can put together, and the next thing you know, you see a history starting to come together. As we mentioned before, uh, there's a crucial year, 965-966 B.C., that was arrived at through this analysis of going backwards uh, from the 586 time to connect all the dots back there, and they arrived at the fourth year of Solomon. Now, why is that year important? Because 1 Kings 6.1 says, From the giving of the law to the fourth year of Solomon was 480 years. It's an inspired part of Scripture, 1 Kings 6.1. So we know that if you take 965 and go back 480 years, that puts the Exodus at 1445 B.C. That's how we get the dates. And then if you go from Galatians 3.17, from the promise to Abraham to the giving of the law, it was 430 years. Oh, 1445, that takes us back to when? 1875 for the promise to Abraham. How old was he when it happened? 75 years old. So he was born in 1950 B.C. It's, that's how history is put together. They do it by comparison and then they put it on a timeline. And that's how they, how they see how it fits. So the Catholics early on in the 600s were very instrumental in getting the ancient history as we know it today getting it put together. Now, part of the problem was when they got back before the Exodus, uh, actually, when you turn liberals loose on anything, they can tear up an anvil. It is just amazing what they can do uh, to do that. And so they're trying to say now the Exodus was 1290 B.C. Well, I don't know if I want to go down that rabbit trail or not. That's not the rabbit trail we're doing. But I get so upset at that because the Bible says we know what the fourth year of Solomon is with a high level of confidence. And we go 480 years before that, we get the Exodus. With the date of the Exodus, a high level of confidence. And what we need to do is make the other ancient histories agree with the Bible. Because the Bible is the one that claims inspiration and has proven itself to be inspired. Uh, nobody's ever refuted it and, uh, other than to say, it's just not right. Well, no, it is right when you know where to look and, and how to look. So <clears throat> it descended from the early church. It's now considered by some to be the primary representative of Christianity and the Pope to be the leader. That is the, that's really the way the world looks at things and looks at Roman Catholicism is that they are indeed the leaders of Christianity around the world. And that's how the world has looked at it. You, when you look at some of the places that they went to early on and you look at some of the places they still are, the Lord has kept them there for a reason. And it's been phenomenal. We um, have, <laughs> well, the, 
ladies just got back from Kenya, and in Kenya they stayed in a Catholic center. And they were very well taken care of, had a great time of ministry back and forth. It was really a, a nice thing. But the, the world looks at the Pope. Well, if the Pope is, is found, to be, found to be fallible instead of infallible, then he becomes the representative of all Christianity of the world. And that's, that becomes a problem because there's only one perfect and they put him on a cross. And he walked away from a tomb. Only one ever been perfect. None of the other ones were. So he is the primary representative of Christianity. Now what is some of their teaching? Their teaching, um, some are actually saved. Now I've run into a lot of people that have studied a lot of doctrine and theology and everything else. And they say that uh, none of the Catholics are saved. And I, I take issue with that. I take issue with that because I've talked to a lot of them. I've had good friends that are Catholics throughout the years. And they're, they're usually pretty good people. There's some scoundrels just like there are scoundrel Protestants roaming around. That's, that's for sure. But <clears throat> some believe that they're saved just by being a member of that church. Now that's a works, that's a works message. And that's not the way we're saved. We're saved by grace, through faith, that none of ourselves is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest that he should boast. Jews aren't saved because they're Jews, is one of the arguments. It, if anybody is going to be saved because of their race or the organization they belong to, it would probably be the Jews. But the Jews, are not. that's not how they're saved. Everybody is saved by grace. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him righteousness. So I've run into people, a lot of people, that uh, have said, well, if they're, if they're in the Catholic Church, they're not saved. But they don't realize that maybe some of them were given the gospel clearly back when they were in the, when they were in the, the church school. I've talked to people, said the nuns, the nuns came. The nuns gave the gospel as clearly as anybody they've ever heard give the gospel. And if a person believed, I believe they're saved. Now that's that's what I believe. And I I have had discussions with people about that before, and probably have some more before the Lord calls us home. Uh, they have similar doctrines to fundamental Christians, such as the Trinity. Yeah, how are you going to identify a cult? A cult, see, doesn't believe in the Trinity. They're always chopping up one of the members of the Trinity as a rule. But Roman Catholics believe in the Trinity, and guess what? We believe in the Trinity. Otherwise, we need to change the name of the church if we don't. But we, we believe in the Trinity. Virgin birth. See, they believe in the virgin birth of, of Christ. We believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Again, same, same doctrine. Uh, the deity of Christ. Do we believe in the deity of Christ? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory is it the only begotten of the Father. Sure. They believe in his death. They believe in his burial. His resurrection. And his ascension. So there's some common ground there. That uh, we have common beliefs. With the, with the Roman Catholics. Now. <clears throat> the, sadly. Uh, I believe there's a lot of things that they add. To the gospel. Uh, but you know they're not the only ones. 
you know, some of the uh, Lutherans as well, some of the main reformer doctrines add the sacraments into it. Uh, when you start looking at other people in Protestant Christianity, they, they add a whole lot of works into things. Uh, different sacraments, and they'll tack them on and say, well, you got to do this and this and this if you're, if you're saved, if you want to be saved, or if you uh, want to keep your salvation. Now, I grew up in a church that I, I thought you had to walk down an aisle to get saved. You know, that was just added to it. Who'd they talk about? The Jesus that I still know. What did they talk about? He died, was buried, and rose again. But boy, you don't come down that aisle and get baptized, then you just weren't saved. Well, that's not what I find when I read the book. When I read the book, oh, let's see. For God so loved the world. Isn't that a familiar passage? Whosoever what? Believes. And what else? believes in him see it's it's so amazing that um, that's that we want to add to and that's that's a common flaw of a flawed person to want to help God out that's what it is we have a sin nature and so obviously you know we need to help God out a little bit on this thing and we need to do certain th- you know we should do things we should devote our life to him for no other reason than our so great salvation. We should. Will people do that? Very few, or I don't, I don't even know if any are close to 100% devotion. David was for a while, and then what happened? Way too many things to list tonight. The teaching. <clears throat> we have non-biblical teaching that is carried on, the authority of traditions and papal decrees. Now, this is part of where the problem came in because as they moved into the 600s and on up around the time of the Crusades into 900, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, whenever they started doing that, they started issuing papal decrees. Now, they actually called them the papal bull, which I find kind of interesting because... We have other terminology that goes with that in the vernacular English. But the uh, <clears throat> their authority of, of traditions. Now when I think about traditions, it's this is the way we're going to do communion. This is the way we're going to do whatever. And I think about the traditions of the elders and how much attention did the Lord pay to those. You go to Mark chapter 7, and, it's, and they... We're going after his disciples for eating food with their unwashed hands. And unwashed is a, it's a ceremonial thing. It's not like we do. You know, with the COVID thing, you've got to wash your hands and rub them and scrub them and do all that sort of stuff. They didn't even get close to cleaning their hands up. To be ceremonially clean, they just had to get water on every part of the hand. And they had a way that they did it with a certain limited amount of water. And it was a ceremonial cleansing. And they didn't do that. The disciples didn't do that. They were out in the field. And they were hungry. And so they said, your disciples eat with unwashed hands. And he said, nicely you hold to the traditions of men. And you put aside the laws of the Almighty God. Now this is... This to me says, 
we have to be careful with our traditions. Because when you take a tradition and you turn it into a law, you establish a legalism. That's what happens. <clears throat> I was looking at the scripture, learning from the scriptures, just starting to grow 40-something years ago. And I, it, I, I was raised in a very legalistic church, just to tell you the truth. And what I did when I got into Bible studies and learning how to study the Bible and all that, I just traded one legalism for another. Quite honestly, it's so easy to do because we can take what we know and we can, we can stand as the judge of everybody on planet Earth except us. And here is, the, here is this, uh, uh, these traditions. What happens with that? Well, we have a tradition of starting at, oh, here's a good one. 30 years ago when we started Trinity, Galen would bring her keyboard with her and we'd set it up in the bar of the governor's inn, which smelled like burnt bacon and old beer. Okay, Sunday morning after this, Saturday night at the hotel bar, because that's what it was. And <clears throat> we did two hymns. That's what we did. And we had a bunch of people that were steeped in two hymns is all the music you ever need at any point in time in a church service. And so, I don't know what, we went. We did that for a year or so. And I said, hey, let's put in another song. Some of the comments I got from the deacons. <laughs> so all we're going to do, sang. We're going to sing all morning long. Well, if we ever get it right, we'll stop singing. <laughs> Y'all, you preach about love. Well, if we ever get it right, we'll preach on something else. But it's kind of like it, that. what had happened, it became a tradition. Okay, Traditions are good. Things we do at Christmas are good. They're, they're good to establish traditions. But when they become laws by which you evaluate other people, that's a legalism. And that's what the Jews had. They turned that into a spiritual law. And the papal decrees, see, the, the, when decrees start going the other way from the Bible, that's a real problem. Now, there has to be, at times, decrees about how to do certain things. We set up, um, we set up a constitution here at Trinity Bible Church. In the event certain things happen, this is the procedures that need to be done. And that's just part of having a good organization and, and things that we have to do. But the Bible is our constitution. More so than the book on the back table is our constitution. And if the constitution on the back table is found to be an error, we change it. But it has to be judged, needs to be judged by the Bible itself. So papal decrees started coming out and these things had all kinds of things in, in them. And uh, that's part of what, what happened and part of why they went awry. Uh, they believe that the uh, communion service, actually that the cup and the, and the bread actually become the body and blood of Christ. It's, uh, it's called uh, trans something. Trans, no, um, transubstantiation. Okay. And so... 
here it is, and so you take this wafer, and it actually becomes the, the flesh of Christ, and you take this cup, and it actually becomes his blood. Well, it's symbolic. It was designed to be symbolic. It was established by the Lord himself on the Passover meal the night before the cross. And it was symbolic. This is my body that is broken for you. That's, that's, the, that's the bread. But that bread wasn't his body that was broken for them. This is the cup. It's a new covenant in my blood. So here is this new covenant that is, that is um, done. But it is, again, it is a picture. It is a shadow. It is a, it is a symbol. It's, it's that which is a, a picture of the reality. An interesting thing about the shadows, they're not realities. There can't be realities. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were just a shadow of the things to come. So <clears throat> the literal body and blood in communion. And the role of Mary as the spiritual mother and intercessor. Now, was Mary a phenomenal woman? Read Luke 1 and 2. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was unusual in Israel at that, at that point in time. But was she divine? No. There's nothing that says in Scripture that she is divine. She gave birth to the, to the Lord as the mother of the Lord. But did she give birth to God? Hmm. No, Daddy was God. <laughs> The Holy Spirit was daddy, so daddy was the one that was God. She was mom. That's how he became God and man at the same time, through her. But she was a virgin. And how did, how did that happen? So when the Holy Spirit's involved, it seemed like all things are possible with the Lord. It's not any problem at all for him to, uh, for him to uh, impregnate Mary and nine months later bring forth a son. None at all. Now what are some of the teaching? The teaching oftentimes is non-biblical. When it goes outside of the Bible, that's where it becomes a problem. It's kind of interesting. I uh, talked with Mario. Mario's down in Mexico. He grew up in Mexico. And there are a lot of Catholics in Mexico. And they put eight more books in the in the Bible than than uh, most of us do. The Catholics added those to that. And did they have the authority to do that? Well, they, they took it on themselves. But see, the Jews didn't even accept those apocryphal books whenever they were written as Scripture. And they couldn't because there was no prophet. The prophets are the ones that had to authenticate the books. And between 400 B.C., and the birth of Christ, there weren't any prophets in the land. And that's, these books were written during that intertestamental period, as it is called, and the Jews didn't accept them as Scripture. So when they don't accept them, then you kind of think maybe they weren't Scripture. But they decided they would go ahead and add them back in. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad because some of those books contain historical errors in them. First and second Maccabees contain some historical errors to be found in them. And we believe that there are no errors in the scripture whatsoever. So if, if you accept those in, in a way you've added in uh, error into the scripture. 
Mario is every time he go into a village or something to evangelize a village, first thing they'd do is, how many books are there in the Bible? And he'd say, do you have one of your Bibles with you? Yeah. He'd say, would you open it up to John 3.16 read it for me? Because it says the same thing <laughs> in a Catholic Bible as it does a Protestant Bible. Same Bible verse. He said, okay, we can talk about how many books there are later. Let's talk about what must you do to be saved <laughs> now. Let's get past all the peripheral stuff and get to the important stuff. So oftentimes non-biblical teaching is, is added. Um, the Catholic Church, Catholic means universal. That's what the word means. That's where it, where it comes from. So it is the known as the sacrament of salvation. Now when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become part of the universal Catholic Church. So if people say, are you a Catholic? In a way, you can answer honestly, yes. Because I'm part of the universal church. That's what Catholic means. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of the church with a capital C. Trinity, Bible church, we often capitalize the C, but it should be a little c. We're just a local church. We're a local church, a separate part of the body that is here. But do you have to be a member of the uh, universal church to be saved? Or are you saved and become a member of the universal church? See, we're just a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a flip on it. When you believe in Christ, you're entered into union with him. You become part of the body, part of the bride. That's who you are, part of the church. That's who we are as part of the universal church. So to say that being part of this physical uh, church, a church means assembly. Ecclesia is the Greek word. And it means an assembly of people. And uh, interestingly enough, in the first century, first place as it was used, not first place, that was Matthew 16. But Paul used, it's used in the book of Acts to talk about mobs. Because the basic Koine Greek meaning of the word was to assemble. And then the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Spirit gave it a technical meaning. And that is the church at Thessalonica. The church at Colossae. The church. And they're, they're giving it a definite article in front of it and says that's what it is. But how do you get in? So you can join any physical body of believers anywhere you want to but it'll never save can't do that we first met our friend in uh, South India <clears throat> very first conversation we had with him was by snail mail which was a lot of fun back in the early 90's about three weeks each way for a letter to get back and forth and you never know if it's going to get there or not we got an email and it said uh, I have a ministry to people in South South India. I have a ministry to people and they're peripheral Christians. And it's interesting that that word was in there because the word peripheral caught my attention. And so we wrote back and he said, I can't converse via email. We can't do this because 
Um, this is my friend's, and he's at work, <laughs> so we can't we can't do this through his computer at work. So that's when the snail mail started going back and forth. And I said, please explain what this is. And he said, well, he wrote back. He said, I've spoken to over 300 churches down here, and he said. Many people believe that they are saved because they're a member of a church. Many people believe they're saved because their parents were Christians. Many people, they call themselves Christians, but they're not. And so my question was, what must I do to be saved? That's one way you can test people real fast. What must I do to be saved? You tell me what I need to do to be saved. And if they start putting a lot of works in it, then you know they need the gospel. They need they need to hear it. Boys, that's what started our conversation. And he was talking about Church of South India, the uh, Church of St. Thomas, built or founded by the Apostle Thomas in the first century. He's talking about those, and they've got pretty nice places. They've got some uh, uh, established, well-established uh, buildings, churches, etc., but um, those, those churches don't save people. And he knew that. And so that's part of where our relationship developed um, early on. Uh, the Pope is the apostolic successor of Peter. Now, there's question, some, some question whether or not Peter ever went to Rome or not. But there's no connection. There's, there's passages that are... Uh, stated upon this on this rock I will build my church you Peter I've given the keys of the kingdom etc there are passages that would lend to that but it did not establish a succession of popes and there's nothing that indicates that Peter passed on his position to other people we know that Paul did but there's nothing indicates that, that Peter actually did that so the Pope is the apostolic succession of, of the Apostle Peter. Um, they pray to saints in heaven. There's a whole lot of them you can, that you can pray to. And why? Would be a question I would ask. I mean, a simple question. And I'm not doing that to be smart. I'm just asking, why would I pray to a saint in heaven? Whenever I read... When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father, who art in heaven, sanctified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. Why do we need to go to the saints? Why do I need to pray to Peter or Thomas or any of those people? They don't have the power to do anything other than they have fellowship with the Lord himself. But why not go directly to the source? Didn't, it seems like I read, I know I read in Hebrews 4, 16, come boldly into the throne of grace. So you can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Now to me, that's an invitation to walk right into the throne room of the Almighty. Okay? Well, I don't need anybody in the middle. One of the amazing things about uh, this is that the priesthood became specialized. Well, the priesthood, and I'm not even sure that's in this point in this handout or not, but the, the priest became specialized. 
again. They had a specialized priesthood under the tribe of Levi, under the Mosaic law. But then on the day of Pentecost, that all went away, and it became a universal royal priesthood. And you know where you find that? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. First, that's What type of priesthood do we have? We're priests. Every single one of us. We're the ones that confess our sins directly to the Father. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't have to go through a priest, a human being, ever again. The Lord's the great high priest. Okay, so if we want to, if we want to go directly before the throne of grace, that's where we need to go. And uh, purgatory is a purifying experience after death. And this is kind of hazy. I'm not sure that there's really a well-defined doctrine on it, um, other than to, to say that this is kind of what they they came up with, trying to handle different verses. We covered this not too long ago. But it's, uh, it's like you go to purgatory for so long and then you get out of there and, and go to heaven. Well, uh, it's not really uh, uh, stated anywhere. Purgatory means purge. And the purging is of the sins. So I'm not sure what happens if you end up in a streetcar named Desire and you're trying to get out of <laughs> purgatory into the holy of holies. Not quite sure how that how that works. And then baptism is the first step in forgiveness of sins. This is totally different from from Protestant Christianity because when the moment you put your faith in him you're forgiven. That's the name of that tune, sola fide, sufficiency of faith all by itself. That's that's who he is. Baptism is the first step in forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins comes through the sacraments. The different sacraments that they have, the seven sacraments, and as long as you participate in those, and that's part of where the purging comes from and the purification from sins. But that's not taught anywhere in the scripture that I have seen. Uh, it's, you know, did the, did the blood of bulls and goats take away sins? It seems like if they could have, they would have. And the Jews thought they would. So what makes us think that a sacrament is going to pay for our sins? Whenever the, an animal sacrifice of a magnificent animal, an innocent victim, wouldn't touch the sin problem in our life at all. So how could, how could a baptism bit of water how could uh, how could a cup and a piece of bread how could any of those things remotely compare with what the Lord did for us on the cross and just some comments <clears throat> many areas of doctrine were cap- there are many areas of doctrine where Catholics follow the scripture but there are many areas where they do not follow the scripture okay so we can uh, I, I enjoy talking with them. I enjoy visiting with them. I've had some good conversations. And I've, I've ran into more than one over the last few months that said I've started wondering about some of the rituals that we've gone through. And they said that, hey, maybe these rituals are just empty rituals. They're not, 
They're not the reality. And to me, that's an awakening that uh, looks like maybe happening. I see people falling away from the faith in a lot of different regards, in a lot of different ways. And it's not just not just Christian faith, it's a lot of faith that they're falling away from. And that, that's just a, a fact. Now, <clears throat> why, and part, why would that happen? Well, let's see. What is it called in the last... Uh, zeitgeist. Spirit of the times. German word. Nasty word. And part of the spirit of the times is do away with all religion. All of it. It's part of what the atheists want. They want one religion. And what I read a week or two ago about they're trying to establish a... uh, place for the center of worship of a one world religion on an island off the coast of Dubai. Isn't that amazing? Do you think maybe the last days are coming together? Are coming together? Now, <clears throat> there are many areas of doctrine where they follow. A Catholic may be saved if they trust Christ alone for their eternal destiny. Just that simple. Saved by grace through faith. Now, <clears throat> that's Roman Catholicism. There's a lot more to be found there in the back uh, of the book if you want to read through some of that because uh, we, we believe in God the Father, make your heaven, make your earth, the, the Apostles' Creed. Then I'm, just a couple things about that. We really wouldn't argue with most of what you find in there because uh, we do believe in God the Father, maker of heaven, maker of earth, and in His Son, and in the Holy Spirit, we believe in in those things. No question, no question about it. The um, it's interesting that some of the early creeds were only a few points, and then as people started asking questions, they started expanding the points, <laughs> and then we end up with doctrinal statements. Like we've got one on our back table back there. I mean, they're important because there are distinctions I think that need to be made in Scripture. But that's what that's what's going on. Roman Catholicism. Uh, next week, I know it's a little bit early, but next week we'll uh, uh, take a peek at secular humanism again. We've already looked at it once, and then move on through these through the world religions and just kind of figure out where to go from there. Uh, we are early. Is there any questions pertaining this topic, hopefully? <laughs> How tall am I? <laughs> I was six foot tall. <laughs> the Lord started hammering on my head. Yeah. All right. You guys have worked hard. Wait. Okay. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, it's just like uh, part of the way we started the book. 90, 90% of the people going to church today don't know what's in their doctrinal statement. They don't know what they believe. That's George Barna and research that he's done. Of the 10% that know what they believe, 90% of those don't know why they believe it. It's just been taught to them. This is what we believe and what we accept. And that's in part why this book was put together. Because as we travel the world in the United States, we find this, this same thing, and the devil is smart. He goes after the very foundations of things. He goes after the very basics of all theology. He, he goes after creation. Is there a creator or not? I mean, that's, that's what he's after. How about a revelation? Did he reveal himself perfectly or not? Well, let's see. And there are a whole lot of mistakes in the Bible. Isn't that the thing going around right now? So if he didn't, if if there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible, he didn't reveal himself perfectly. At any one of the points on this chart, any one of the points, the devil can derail somebody. And that's part of why this this whole book was put together, is to give us Christians some ammunition to at least be able to carry on a conversation with people because oftentimes we oftentimes Christians are cowards okay we don't want to engage somebody we don't want to have a conversation with them and so we just let it slide whenever what we need is what Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 gently correcting those in opposition so they may escape the snare of the devil we need ammunition to work with we need a grace attitude we need to learn to ask questions. Okay? And so, that's what we do. Ask and then listen. And I'm the one that talks all the time. But I've asked a lot of questions along the way. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, it's been once again a good night. Thank you for this fellowship. Father, thank you for these uh, decorations. But Father, we know that you decorate the hearts and souls of of humanity. And so, Father, I pray that our souls would be that which would be beautiful. It would go forth. It would teach people of your grace and mercy. And I pray that we would be your vessels for honorable use. Father, that you would use us in a mighty way. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.